Good morning, Emmanuel. And welcome to our first Sunday of Lent. I know that we have present uh, this morning many who are new to the church and many more who are new to the Anglican expression of the church. So I'm going to start this morning's message by very briefly touching on just a few of the traditional practices of the church in Lent. So Lent, as you may know, is the 40-day period of spiritual preparation for the celebration of Easter. And traditionally, the church gives increased attention to three spiritual disciplines. They are first, prayer and fasting. And I know that sounds like two things, but they always go together. We never have fasting without prayer. Second, confession and repentance from sin. Again, those two are never separated. And third, almsgiving or generosity to the poor. Now, we do all these things year-round. We can fast and pray at any time. We can fast and repent of our sins all the time. We're called to be open-handed toward the poor all the time. But during Lent, we give these practices special focus and attention. And of all these disciplines, fasting during Lent often gets the most attention, and it's the easiest to get confused about. Historically, fasting meant fasting from food. Sometimes you might fast from a certain type of food, usually kind of a luxury comfort food, like meat or desserts for the entire 40 days. And sometimes you would fast from all food for a meal or a day, again, alongside prayer. And these days, in addition to fasting from food, or sometimes instead of it, you might choose to fast from a any type of comfortable indulgence. So you might hear someone say they're giving up watching TV during Lent, or maybe they're going to give up online shopping during Lent. The specific things that we fast from might vary, but the principle is the same. We have an opportunity to break away from things that habitually bring us comfort, or in the case of food, even stepping away from things that bring us our physical life. And we do this for a season so that we might remember that ultimately all our joy and comfort and all our life comes from God himself and not from the good gifts that he gives to us. That's why a Lenten fast is never about self-punishment and it's never about self-improvement. It is about drawing near to Jesus. Now, we don't have nearly enough time this morning to go into all the ways that the Lord might use a Lenten fast. There are so many. But one thing our Lenten commitments can do is illustrate the theme of today's scripture readings from Deuteronomy and Romans. Together, today's readings contrast what it's like to trust in God's law or trusting in our ability to keep God's law versus entrusting ourselves to God's Son, Jesus Christ. The discipline of fasting in particular feels a little bit like the law. It's not the law, but it's enough like the law that I found it's really useful to ferret out some of my confusion about what my ability or inability 
to keep the law means. For example, it's definitely not a sin to drink coffee, but if you commit to not drinking coffee during Lent, you are voluntarily and temporarily taking up kind of like a mini law. Thou shalt not drink coffee for 40 days, except on Sundays. And you can learn an awful lot about temptation, about your personal limits, what you really think about yourself and what you really think about God, what you really believe about your need for Jesus as you abstain from coffee or whatever for 40 days. Let me tell you about one particular incident from my life from many years ago. I had given up extraneous spending for Lent. So between Ash Wednesday and Easter, I was only going to purchase food and household necessities like toilet paper and toothpaste, that sort of thing. But one day, I found myself in the checkout line of Jewel Osco eyeing the magazine rack. This was long enough ago that magazines were a thing. Um, and they were relatively cheap back then, too. And I like reading material, and I like beautiful pictures, and I used to like magazines like Martha Stewart Living, stuff like that. And as I moved closer to the cash register, a sort of dialogue began developing in my mind. I wanted to purchase that magazine. And I knew that a magazine is not an essential purchase. But I really wanted the magazine. And the closer I got to the cash register, the more bizarre and heated the dialogue in my mind became. So there was no reasonable justification for purchasing a magazine that day. So it was not a reasonable dialogue. I got angry and frustrated and a little worked up all by myself in my head. And when I picked up that stupid magazine and paid money for it, I felt both defiant and humiliated. As I walked out of the store with my purchases, the defiance faded and the humiliation lingered. How could I have been done in by a $5 piece of glossy paper? I felt so defeated. My humiliation at the grocery store, as low stakes as it seems, is a small example of a big spiritual reality that the Apostle Paul wrote about in his letter to the Romans. In chapter 7, Paul talks about how the law, an objectively good gift from a God that shows us how to live well becomes a tool of sin in our lives. For me, that day at Jewel Osco, the temporary Lenten fast from excess spending was the commandment that did me in. Paul used the example of the moral law against coveting as his example, but it's the exact same dynamic. He wrote, it was the law that showed me my sin. Sin used the command do not covet to arouse all kinds of covetousness desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. But when I learned the command not to covet, 
When I decided to abstain from extraneous purchases in Lent, the power of sin came to life, and I died. So I discovered the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin used the commands to kill me. Paul goes on to add, but still, the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. When I think of our relationship to the law, the main phrase that comes to mind is that Facebook relationship status, it's complicated. Our relationship to the law is full of weird paradoxes. We can't do without it. Lawlessness is a terrible option, but we also can't live with it. The law and its commandments are expressions of God's character, characters of justice and of mercy. It was given to God's people as a way of teaching them how to love one another well and rightly and how to honor God. The law describes to the very best of its abilities how love can play out in a broken world. We need it. But as Paul described, and as I experienced that day in the grocery store, when this holy law is given to sinful fallen people like you and me, things get complicated. On the one hand, living by the law of the Lord brings more life to our lives. Let's look at today's text in Romans, starting at verse 5, and you can look in your Bibles or your bulletins. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. The writer, the Apostle Paul, is referring in this verse to a spot in Leviticus, which reads, if you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. And from this morning's Old Testament reading in Deuteronomy 30, in verse 15, we hear, See, I have set before you life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you. Obeying the law is both a way to love God and to imitate him, and these things are life-giving. But on the other hand, where we fail to keep the law, we die. The counterpart to verses 15 and 16 in Deuteronomy is in verses 17 and 18. But if you turn your heart, if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. So it's wonderful to have the law. Keeping God's law results in life and fruitfulness and blessing. But where we can't keep it, the commands kill us. We can't live without the law of God, but we can't live with it either. That is a huge complication in our relationship to the law. Not only that, there's the confusion that Moses introduced when he claims that keeping the law was not too hard for us. 
Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11. For this commandment that I command to you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart and so that you can do it. It kind of feels like Moses is being unreasonably optimistic. And in fact, we hold this scripture in tension alongside many other parts of scripture that attest to the fact that no one is capable of keeping the law with absolute righteousness. All have sinned. All of us have gone astray. There is none righteous, no, not one. By the work of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Now, Moses knows this. He knows that we cannot keep the law perfectly. The point that he's making here is more modest and reasonable than that. His encouragement that the commandments are not way up high in heaven and that they're not far across the sea remind us that God's commands are not too hard to understand nor are they impossible, point by point, for humans to obey. God revealed his expectations and made them clear in plain language. For the Jewish people who first received the law, and for Christians today who read Holy Scriptures, the law of the Lord is quite accessible. The commandments of God are literally near us, right here, And the Ten Commandments were literally in our mouths just a few minutes ago when we were praying the Decalogue together. And they are possible to keep. It is possible to honor your father and mother. It is possible to refrain from lying and adultery. Commentator James McLaren explains it like this. Complete conformity is impossible, but... Real, though imperfect, obedience is within the reach of all. No one can love as he or she ought. Everyone can love. So Moses' point is valid. We know what the Lord asks of us, and point by point, nothing he asks of us is outside our capabilities. We could keep the law, but we can't. I could leave a magazine on a rack, and yet I couldn't. It's complicated. This is a puzzle. This is a paradox. But thanks be to God, in Jesus, the puzzle and the irreconcilable paradox find their resolution. You see, it turns out that Moses was not only the lawgiver, but a prophet. Moses ascended Mount Sinai, received the Ten Commandments from God, and brought them down the mountain to make them known to the people. He brought the law. But it is significant that Moses, through his own sin, was not allowed to cross from the wilderness into the promised land. This was an historic reality, but it is a powerful symbol as well. The law giver 
could not get into the promised land. We cannot reach heaven by keeping God's commandments. But what Moses the prophet and what the law itself could do and did do was point to Jesus, the coming Messiah. Even at the time the law was given, Moses drops hints that the perfect keeping of the law is still to come. It lay in the future for the Israelites, not in the present. And these hints get strong right around chapters 29 and 30 of Leviticus or Deuteronomy. Um, and earlier in Romans, we can read explicitly that the role of the law and the prophets is to bear witness to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The purpose of the law was to testify to the coming Christ, Jesus. The law sketches out for us the rough outline of the character of God so that when God came in the flesh, this would be one way to recognize him as the only righteous human being, the only righteous man, and we might put our faith in him and be saved. The purpose of the law was and is to point us to Jesus. The law is good, but it has no power to save us from the sin that the law condemns. The law does not in itself bring us life. It can't make us righteous. But when the purpose of the law is fulfilled in Jesus, in Jesus, it brings life and righteousness to us. Looking at Romans 10 again, this is what verse 4 is talking about. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law has its end. It finds its purpose in the person of Jesus Christ. Not because the law becomes irrelevant when Jesus came, but because it was completely fulfilled in him. The word end here means goal or purpose. The law found its perfect completion in the person of Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus himself said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that's why earlier in Romans, Paul emphatically says that we do not overthrow the law by faith, but on the contrary, we uphold the law. The coming of Jesus Christ did not do away with the law, but his coming completely changed our relationship to the law. See how in verses 6 and 7 of Romans 10, Paul takes Moses' teaching about the law and nearly word for word replaces the law with Christ, saying, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Our relationship to the law is superseded by our relationship to a person, Jesus Christ, who kept that law perfectly. And a relationship with Jesus is just infinitely, indescribably superior to our very complicated, painful, and lethal relationship to the law itself. For us mere mortals, 
The law begins and ends in Jesus. The law of God, while plain in its revelation and quite doable piece by piece, is way, it's just too much for us fallen creatures. It's like a live electric cable full of such power that we can't deal with it on our own apart from Jesus. When we fallen creatures encounter the law and try to live by it in our own strength, apart from Jesus, weird stuff happens in our souls. But the law in Jesus finds its end, its proper place, and its proper relationship to us and us to it. Jesus Christ, though a human being with human limitations, just like us, he could have given into the temptation of the devil in the gospel passage, but he was absolutely sinless, perfectly sinless, the perfect revelation of our perfectly righteous God in heaven. He not only kept the letter of the law perfectly, he also perfectly embodied the spirit of the law, which is the love of God. To the raw letter of the law, Jesus brings the heart of the Father, love, joy, peace, gentleness, mercy. The life of God could not flow to us through the law. We have no ability to keep this beautiful law. But now... The life of God flows into us through the person of Jesus when we unite ourselves to him in faith. Now, although we continue to strive to imitate Christ, to follow Jesus in the ways that he walked, we are released from the unbearable burden of law-keeping. Jesus has already carried and completed that responsibility on our behalf. All of our faith and all of our hope and all of our love are set on the man, Jesus Christ, who kept the law so that we might live with him and with the Father in the Holy Spirit in unity forever and ever. We can place no faith in our ability to keep the law. The world will frequently talk about the importance of believing in yourself. But really, we can't count on ourselves. We will fail and fail and fail again. But there is one in whom we can put our faith completely, Jesus Christ himself. And there's more good news. Scripture tells us that the word of faith in Jesus is very near. Verse 8 in Romans but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God gave the law to Moses as a gift. Moses gave the law to the people. And then the people learned to speak of it constantly. They worked and trained themselves to love it that they might obey. With practice and labor, 
the people got the word into their mouths and into their hearts. But the word of faith is a gift of God of dramatically greater magnitude and scale and proximity. We know that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. Salvation is not of our own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. Do you remember in the New Testament, there's, there's a, it was a short, sketchy tax collector named Zacchaeus. He had the law. He was of the Jewish people, but he didn't keep it well. He used his petty bureaucratic powers to extort money from his fellow Jews. Then he met Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus did? He invited himself over to Zacchaeus' home where Zacchaeus lived. And as Zacchaeus encountered Jesus, he confessed and repented of his sin. And Jesus responded to Zacchaeus saying, salvation has come to this home today for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus comes near to us seeking us, coming to our homes, coming to our places of business, coming to the neighborhoods in which we live. He comes near with the word of faith. He comes near to those who are lost, which is all of us. He comes near to those who are floundering in our lives. We don't have to go up to heaven to drag him down to be with us. We don't have to go into the abyss to pull him up to be with us. He comes to us. Jesus Christ is here now with his perfect fulfillment of the law, putting his word, the word of faith, on our lips and in our hearts that we might be saved. We've all broken God's beautiful law, all of us. As we enter more deeply into confession this Lent, our sins and our failures may come back vividly to our minds. I suspect that between us as a whole body, we've probably broken all 10 of the commandments and then some. Maybe you've committed a felony. Maybe you're sleeping around. Maybe you've had an abortion. Maybe you're a man who lusts after other men or a woman who lusts after other women. Maybe you abuse food or alcohol or drugs. Maybe you're chronically judgmental or chronically self-righteous. Maybe you gossip or walk around with a heart full of rage. We all have our own sad relationship to sin. Different types, different degrees, but failure to live by God's pure law is 100% universal. And scripture says that even the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. So it doesn't matter what your particular vice is. Whatever you have done or failed to do, 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is really that simple. That is a relationship that is not complicated. Salvation has come to your house today, for the Son of Man comes to seek and save those who are lost. To those who have already believed in your heart that, Jesus, that God raised Jesus from the dead and have already confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I say, praise God and rejoice. Rejoice in him. Share in his goodness along with him. And as you strive to exhibit and emulate the holy beauty of Jesus in your life, where you succeed in that, all honor and praise is given to God who has saved you by his grace. And where you fail in imitating the holiness of Christ, rejoice that you can acknowledge your weakness and sin and turn toward Jesus in confidence that he will freely forgive and that he freely shares his beautiful holiness with you. To those who are struggling to believe this morning, let me say, if you are holding back the word of faith that is in your mouth and in your heart, there is no better day than today to go ahead and speak that word aloud and commit yourself in faith to Christ who came for you to be with you and to rescue you. If you are looking for that word of faith and you can't seem to find it in your heart or in your mind, boldly ask the Father to give it to you. At the end of our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul repeats, everyone who believes is saved. All will be saved. The Father can give you the faith that you ask for. Jesus says that he will never cast out those the Father gives to him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.